0: that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under his, him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes. Just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes. What have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some of you, some who are ignorant of God, I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit the spiritual did not come first but the natural and after that the spiritual the first man was of the dust of the earth the second man is of heaven as was the earthly man so are those who are of the earth and as is the heavenly man so also are those who are of heaven and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man i declare to you brothers and sisters that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable listen i tell you a mystery we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear brother, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain.
1: Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Some years ago, in giving the address at a memorial service, I had the experience of being surprised by my own words. Although I prepared them beforehand and knew what I was gonna say, actually saying them in the presence of a grieving family, friends, and many others, strangely surprised me. It was a memorial thanksgiving service, excuse me, for Sir Harold Murray Knight, a fine Christian man who had risen to the office of governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia. There were many suits at the service at St Andrew's Cathedral, bankers, economists, politicians. Towards the end of my brief sermon, yes it can do done, this is what I said, I asked this question, What is the future for Harold Murray Knight? You might say, what future? Do the dead have a future? Don't they only have a past, which we're celebrating today in our memorial Thanksgiving? Does Harold Murray Knight have a future? Let me say this. He does, if he was not mistaken, about his life course. And I concluded with these words, speaking of uh, Sir Harold. He lived trusting his life to God, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And the Gospel announces that Jesus raised from the dead is Lord of all, and that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and that the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. Harold Murray Knight has a future, because the God who raised Jesus from the dead will, through the Lord Jesus, raise Harold Murray Knight from the dead to stand before him and share his glory. Somehow the reality of the situation made the enormity of what I just said, surprising even to myself. I thought to myself, wow, that is quite a claim. And not just about Sir Harold, but about any believer who's died. Does she, does he have a future? They do, if they're not mistaken about their life's course. And it's that very enormous truth I want to share with you today as we come to the fifth sermon in our series of our Resurrection Hope series. Already we've had, one, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Then, two, what the resurrection means for Jesus. He is Lord and Messiah. Then, three, the resurrection of Jesus and our salvation. We were once dead but now raised with him, once dead in our sins. And, four, last week, the resurrection and our living now. The death and resurrection is a means which brings change. Today, the resurrection and the future. Next Sunday, the resurrection and the universe. The read today, though, the resurrection and our future. Do you have a future in the face of death? What difference would it make to how you live now? We turn to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first one, chapter 15. Once again, we oddly find ourselves in debt to the ignorance and basic rackiness Of the Corinthian church. It's because of their errors and ignorance that Paul wrote this extensive treatment of the resurrection of Jesus and of the resurrection of believers that we find so helpful today. It appears that a number in that church the Corinthians were denying that that believers in Jesus would be raised from the dead. They seem to have accepted that Jesus was raised but drew the light at others. We don't know quite why but the sheer strangeness and enormity of the idea of people being raised from the dead, especially if they've been dead for quite a while and rotted away, I guess made them very sceptical. And our society is exactly the same. We've got no almost no one in our society really believes in resurrecting the dead. The two main views in our society about, about death, life after death, are as follows. Um, there's one belief that dead somehow live on in heaven. Take Prince William's remarks at the coronation concert last Sunday, about the late Queen, quote, up there fondly keeping an eye on us, unquote. Did he really mean that? Or is that just a matter of speaking? The other view, which sounds more realistic, is the dead are dead. They are no more. In the words of Psalm 146, when their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that day, their plans perish, unquote. The Christian faith, on the other hand, puts hope in the resurrection from the dead. So let's see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I have three headings, three take-homes. Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of believers, two, the resurrection body is different from the one that dies, three, the hope of resurrection really matters. First then, how Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of believers. How Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of believers. And the key sentence is verse 20 to 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He says Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, because up till now in the chapter, Paul's been pushing back. And an implication of the Corinthian position, that if if they're right, there's no general resurrection, then really they're actually saying Christ also has not been raised. And that's both untrue and catastrophic for the gospel. No, no, he says Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And we dealt with that part of 1 Corinthians 15, the first part, in the first sermon in the series. And if you've not had a chance to catch up with it, I recommend you do as i mentioned on that on that occasion the word dead in christ has indeed been raised from the dead is plural in paul's greek so it should be christ has been raised from the dead ones not dead abstract the dead bodies the dead from among the dead ones christ has indeed been raised from among the dead ones that's the gospel but paul adds here in verse 20 christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those have fallen asleep, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. First fruits is an agricultural term. It means the beginning of a harvest, the first fruits. In the law of Moses, the Israelites were to bring the first fruits of their harvest as a gift to the Lord, symbolizing that all their harvest was the Lord's. As in Exodus 23, 16, celebrate the the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crop you sow in your field. And in verse 19, bring the best of your first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Now, there are two features about first fruits one is they are first, two is they guarantee the harvest, they're part of the harvest. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for death, those who've died. One, he's the first to be resurrected from among the dead ones. Two, he is part of and guarantee of the full harvest of the resurrection of all those who've fallen asleep in him. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of those who die in him. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of those who die in him. But there's a difference in time. Verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, when he comes, those who belong to him. So Christ the first fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And that when he comes moment is what Paul describes in verse 24. Then the end will come when he, that's the Son, the Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The resurrected Jesus now reigns. His reign will come to its climax when the end comes and the fully victorious Son will hand the completed kingdom to God the Father, after he, the Son, has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, all his enemies under his feet. And guess which enemy is last in line? Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I should add, as Paul does, that the big overarching goal is not about us at all. It's about God, because what's the outcome of all this? Paul tells us in verse 28. When he's done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put all things under him, so that God may be all in all. The goal, the big goal of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, him reigning, is not that you can be raised from the dead, though that is going to happen, but that God may be all in all. The picture here is of these dominions, he calls them, authorities and powers, which oppose God and his purpose for creation. But Christ has been raised from the dead, and by raising him, God the Father has put all things under his feet. A quote, by the way, from Psalm 110, and from Psalm 8. He will dethrone them for his father. At the end of the queue, is death itself, the last enemy to be thrown down. In the words of the great poet John Donne, death, thou shalt die. And that's the time of the great harvest when all who belong to Christ we made alive just as Christ the firstfruits was. And this is what surprised me about my words at that memorial service. The whole service had been about the past, the life and achievements of the man now dead. And there were many achievements, I can assure you. But I asked a question about his future. Does this dead man have a future? In such a setting, it seemed entirely out of place. By the way, I wasn't asking if Sir Harold was up there fondly keeping an eye on us. I was asking something much more substantial. Does he have a future? If what he believed his life long was true, he indeed had a future, a greater future than his past. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. And this is not just true of him. It's true of all who trust their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true of all those who fall asleep in him. It can truly be said at your funeral as well if I'm still around to take it. That's my first heading. Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of believers. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. Now we come to my second heading, how different the resurrection is from our bodies now. 1 Corinthians 35 to 57. In verse 35, Paul raises a possible objection to what he's just said. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? with what kind of body will they come? Now, I think that's a good question, but Paul doesn't. His response is simply to say, verse 36, how foolish. Actually, the NIV is making Paul seem much too polite. More literate is, you fool. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what body will they come? You fool. The reason why Paul reacts like this is that the question is not asking for an answer, but a question that's asking an objection. It's one thing to say Christ was raised from the dead intact, I mean, there he was, treated, you know, that, that's his body, blah, blah, blah. But what of those who've died and whose bodies have rotted away and are no more? What about them? As you know, there's a dead bishop just buried over here. There are three bishops in this church, two alive, one dead. All right? Will, will Bishop Kirkby be, be raised from the dead? It's been there a while. That's the kind of problem, right? So the question is, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have? That's the kind of question. For us, it is a genuine question, though. I'm generally interested. So We say, we say how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And to cut a long story short, Paul's answer is, that the dead are raised in a different body from the one that was buried. A different body from the one that was buried. As he puts it, it's like the way a full-grown plant is different from the seed you planted. Paul goes on to talk about all different kinds of bodies, reflecting the cosmology of his day, and then writes in verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised... Imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There are four levels of difference between what is sown and what is raised. Four. One. It's sown perishable. I mean, that's what de- dead bodies are. They've definitely been perishable. The sown perishable. But it's raised imperishable. Death no longer has any hold on it. It's sown in dishonour, the muckiness of death. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. You're never weaker than when you're dead. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical or natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Or to put it another way, as Paul puts it, the body that is sown is like Adam's body. The first man who's made of dust The body that is raised is like that of Christ's body, risen from the dead, the man from heaven. Verse 49, just as we are born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. The heavenly man is he who has been raised from the dead with a body that is now, see Christ died with a perishable body but now is raised with an imperishable body. In glory, and power, he was raised with a spiritual body. Now, you may want more information, but that's all I can give you, because that's all I see, see here. No, what exactly is it like? I can tell you no more than that. No more than that. An imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. The body of him who was the firstfruits. And there's a reason why it must be that way. And verse 50 gives the reason. He says this, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You must have the kind of body that can inherit the imperishable kingdom of God. Flesh and blood doesn't cut it. That's why the risen body must be different from the body you sow. Got that? But that raises another question. What about those who don't die? I mean, those who are still alive when the end comes. Ah, even if you don't die, Paul says, your body still has to be changed as well. Verse 51 Listen, I tell you a mystery. The word mystery here means I'll tell you a secret. Listen, I'll tell you a secret. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed not all die that is but we'll all be changed whether you die or not listen he says i tell you a mystery we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead shall be raised imperishable and we shall be changed notice here paul is thinking of himself the we as not part of the dead were raised he's believing as evidence of this that he expected to be alive you read his letter from two corinthians on you see paul has changed his mind on that he's aware that may not will not be his future the dead we raised imperishable and we will be changed how shall we be changed verse 53 for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. You put it on, the perishable body will clothe itself with the imperishable body, and the mortal body with the immortality. At present, you are all, you don't mind me saying so, perishable, and you're all mortal. But that's not good enough. For, verse 53 says, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, mortality, because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But when that happens, when the perishable and the mortal are clothed with the imperishable and the immortal, then that's the end of death. Verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. A citation from Isaiah. And, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? A citation from Hosea. Take that, death. Paul concludes the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your victory over death is what God gives you through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you go into death, dear brother or sister, you are utterly powerless. I always remember a friend of mine whose father died way back when I was in the parish at Broadway and he cleaned up his place. He's found under his bed two socks that he'd thrown off. He now died, they're still there. I thought, utterly powerless, even his socks. When you go to death, you have nothing, you're utterly powerless. Only God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, can rescue you then. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we have seen how Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of believers. Two, the resurrected body is different from the body you sow. Now, thirdly, why that hope matters. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 and 29 to 32. Now, Paul is briefer here, though you might say that everything he writes about living the Christian life is an answer to the question, why hope of the resurrection matters? Because it's all his writings. But I restrict myself just to this chapter, where Paul mentions it in two brief places. The first is back in chapter 15, 29 to 32. Paul challenges his readers to imagine what it would be like if there were no resurrection of the dead for believers. Just as early in verses 12 to 19, he challenged them to imagine what it would be like if Christ himself had not raised. And it is an interesting list, to say the least. He begins, verse 29, I quote, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? I must say, I didn't see that coming. Needless to say, scholars are all over the shop trying to work out what the practice of being baptised for the dead actually meant. And unfortunately, in the present situation, it's completely un- underdetermined. From what we've got there, we have no real idea what it was. One scholar I noticed, I saw claimed there were 40 different possible explanations, a model of the, of the creativity of New Testament scholars. All I can say is this, whatever it was, if the dead are not raised, it's pointless. The next implication is much clearer, verses 30 and 32, about Paul himself. As for us, he says, why do we endanger ourselves every day hour? I face death every day. Yes, as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul is very clear of the implications for him, and that is he lives a risky on the edge life for Christ and for his readers. Because of his resurrection of the dead, he can face death every day his opponents cannot intimidate him all they, all the, the only the worst power they have in their hands is the power of death that's all they've got because of the resurrection of the dead Paul can endanger himself for Christ every hour for without the resurrection of the dead he says Paul would have taken it easy gone through his bucket list before he died if the dead are not raised let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. However, it is the last words of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul brings the whole discussion to a conclusion and where he makes what I feel is his strongest point. Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You have a future. Because you have a future, stand firm in life's difficulties and troubles. Be steadfast always excel in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain those acts of Christian virtue those acts of kindness those acts of prayer those acts of sacrifice that giving of money to the poor or the the work of the the ministry of the Lord that time you spent that's not in vain about he says no abound in it because you know it's not in vain Think about it, those words which surprised me at the memorial service, that that dead man we were memorialising, his past has a future, a future because the God who raised Jesus from the dead will through the Lord Jesus Christ raise him from the dead and stand him before him to share his glory. These words are not only true for him, they're true for you. The God who raised Jesus from the dead will through the Lord Jesus raise you from the dead to stand before him and share his glory. They are true for every believer. They are life-changing words. Let your life be changed by them. Therefore, my beloved, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain.